Welcome to Cultural Connections Lab. I'm your host, Dr. Kelly Forbes. We are here to talk with educational professionals around the world to impact and influence the education system as we focus on cultural connections and the education of multilingual, diverse students. We're excited to have you join us today, and we sincerely hope that you enjoy the show. Are you ready to take your school district to new heights? Introducing EduSkills, the leading software as a service platform for Title III and multilingual support in education. At EduSkills, we understand the importance of equitable education and empowering multilingual learners to thrive in today's classrooms. Our cutting edge technology provides school districts across the nation with the tools they need to enhance language acquisition, foster inclusivity, and improve academic outcomes. With seamless implementation and comprehensive support, EduSkills ensures a smooth transition for your district, empowering educators to provide targeted instruction and personalized support. So why wait? Unlock the potential of your school district today with EduSkills. Visit our website at eduskillsllc.com or call us now at 405-879-9898 to schedule a demo. EduSkills. Transforming education, one student at a time. Good afternoon, everyone. So excited to have you guys here this afternoon for EduSkills sponsored session focused on engaging multilingual families. Uh, we will be joined by Dr. David Holbrook and Dr. Kelly Forbes. In addition to myself, uh, Dr. Taylor Trimble. So excited to have you guys with us today. Uh, we will begin uh, first with Dr. Holbrook, and he will be sharing his uh, area of expertise related to compliance and federal guidelines uh, when it comes to uh, supporting families, uh, multilingual families. And then the second half will be uh, uh, joined by Dr. Kelly Forbes, who will share with us best practices for supporting multilingual families in our public schools. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. David Holbrook. Dr. Holbrook is a nationally renowned expert in the administration of EL programs. He earned his PhD in linguistics at the University of West Indies in the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago, and has over 25 years of experience working with speakers of other languages. He has lived in five countries and worked uh, in more than 15. Dr. Holbrook is a former educator and also spent nearly six years at Wyoming Department of Education, where he held positions as Federal Programs Division Director, Title I Director, uh, Title III Director, and for six months was Director of both Federal Programs and, assess and the Assessment Division. So quite a diverse experience. He also has served as State's Native American Education Consultant, working with the Northern Arapaho and Eastern Shoshone tribes and Wind River Indian Reservation. As Federal Programs Division Director, he was responsible for oversight of federal education programs, including McKinney-Vento programs for students experiencing homelessness. He trained with the U.S. Department of Education and participated in federal monitoring of Title III uh, in five states. He has served 13 years with the National Association of English Language Program Administrators, 
which is uh, another acronym for you to learn, NAELPA, two years as president and is now NAELPA's executive director. He also works for Transact Communications and is Transact's executive director of federal programs and state relationships. Dr. Albrook is also many, many things. Uh, he's a, a friend of mine. I've enjoyed getting to know Dr. Holbrook over the years and is uh, just one of the greatest advocates out there. Uh, very willing to help um, be a, a resource for no additional cost. Any question you have related to compliance and um, federal guidelines, I know he's always wel welcome or willing to take a call or an email. So we are grateful for this opportunity to be joined by Dr. Holbrook, and I will pass the mic to you, Dr. Holbrook. Thank you. All right, thanks very much. It is uh, an honor to be able to be here with you all today. I, I do appreciate the opportunity to share some of the things that I've learned. Uh, I, I have shared with uh, Dr. Tribble in the past that uh, I really feel very privileged because of the the varied background and experience I've been able to have. Not a lot of people are offered the opportunities that I've had. And because of that, I don't want to, um, I want to make sure that I offer uh, to the the field uh, my, my expertise and, and what I know so that uh, other folks can benefit from the, the blessings that I've had. So I'm, I'm just happy to be here and uh, happy to share. I'm going to be talking uh, about federal requirements and the law today uh, regarding parent and family engagement. Uh, it's 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 like if if, <laughs> if if you've ever tried to read the law, it's like really a good cure for insomnia. Uh, but when you think about everything that's in there that we're required to do, we got to know this stuff. Uh, so when when I when we passed ESSA, um, you know, my my part of my work with Transact is to work with their parent notices product, which means I had to look at what we had in our uh, ESEA No Child Left Behind parent notices collection and update it to the to the new law. And uh, in doing that, one of the things I there were some things that I noticed, and that's some of what I want to share about the the expansion of parent family engagement requirements. Uh, but some years ago, and I'll share this with you before I get started, uh, I did an analysis of uh, federal monitoring reports. It's another one of those, you know, wonderful, exciting areas of literature. I'm sure that, uh, not really, uh, but it's it it is interesting and telling when you look at it. And and I did an analysis of. Uh, three or four different programs and, and what they were looking at in terms of the requirements for English learners. What, what were the most common findings? What was included in monitoring protocol that was being asked about English learners? Things like that. Um, and it was really very revealing in terms of there were huge holes in, 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 in other places where, it, where there were findings, it was significant of the, uh, the fact of how they patterned in certain ways. Uh, but I, I won't get into all of that. But one of the things I learned is that when when you go in to do a monitoring, because I've done a lot of monitoring, uh, and you're looking at the requirements of a program, if you're in a state or district and you're implementing and doing everything that it says in the law, 
there's, you know, and you're implementing all of those activities and everything perfectly in terms of you're meeting the requirements of the law, there's no guarantee that your program is going to be successful. And I know that sounds disappointing, but get get this when you look at it from the other side. If you're not implementing those activities, there's a high likelihood that your program won't be successful. And to me, to think about it from that perspective, the, the federal requirements are in place to try to give you the ground floor for you to take and, and grow from there to make sure that your programs are successful. Because if you have those things in place, the possibilities are there. But if they're not in place, the po it's, it's much more unlikely that you will be successful. So that's, to me, when you look at the purpose of what's required in federal law, it's more to to lay the foundation for what needs to be there so that success can happen. Uh, so think about it from that perspective. All right, so let's let's start looking at this. I'm going to be talking today about um, a number of things in the law that um, are, are reflective of what's there for parent family engagement and how things changed um, when ESSA was uh, passed and implemented. So there were some increases in the law related to parent family engagement requirements. And then I'll actually get into some of those changes that were made. Um, we'll talk about reporting in depth because there's a lot of information that was included in ESSA for reporting uh, that wasn't there previously. And there were some significant changes made um, for English learners as well. And we'll talk about uh, that in particular uh, towards the end. One of the things that uh, I'll ask you to do is if at any point in time uh, you have a question for me, please type it in the chat. Uh, the folks from EdSkills are going to be monitoring the chat uh, and, and, and they'll try to find a time or a way to interrupt me and ask those questions as I'm presenting. I much rather I much prefer to answer your questions at the time because it makes more sense to me to do it that way. If you ask a question about something I'm going to cover later in the presentation, I'll just say I'll be covering that later in the presentation. But if it's something that is uh, important to you and you want that information, please uh, ask those questions and, and they'll interrupt me and we'll we'll take them as they come. Uh, I think we will also have a time for questions at the end if you want to wait until that time as well. All right. So. If you were around when No Child Left Behind was around, you know that there were a lot of things that were written into the law that were very specific of things that needed to be done um, that the federal government was requiring that that we do at the at the state and district level. So when ESSA was passed, it kept the things that were required to be implemented. Those things are still there. They're, they haven't changed. Um, for example, you know, we still have accountability requirements. Um, we still have details about accountability. However, in No Child Left Behind, those things were written out very specifically. Um, if anybody remembers AYP, uh, that's that's where it was and, and school improvement at the time. Now it's school support and improvement. Uh, those things were there and they were written into the law at the federal level. Now the way ESSA has shifted things, it's moved things from 
the being written into the law to be more like guidelines for states of how things should be done. States are still required to have accountability for schools. However, they get to write how they would like to do it, and that's approved by the federal government. So the, those things are no longer dictated from the federal government. The state says, hey, this is what works best in our state, and the feds look at it, and if it meets you know, a high-quality standard, they approve it, and, and it moves forward. So when, when you're looking at these shifting responsibilities uh, under No Child Left Behind, uh, just about everything swung from where there was a significant federal footprint to a significantly smaller federal footprint in terms of what education looked like at um, the local level. So I talked a little bit about having those foundations in place uh, for success. And so when we're looking at these things that I'm talking about, like accountability and you know, teacher qualifications. If you remember how they qualified teachers, it was very specific federally dictated things. Um, now, instead of the feds dictating it, you required that your teachers have to meet state certification and licensure. So the state's telling you uh, this is what state certification and licensure looks like in our state, rather than the feds saying this is what we're approving for teachers. Uh, so there's that whole shift and just about everything shifted in that direction. So you still have to do these things, but you know we're going to do them more along the lines of the way your state uh, feels like it's most appropriate. And as long as it meets those high, high quality requirements, we're good. Um, there's one area where that that's not true, and that's in the area of parent family engagement, because when you look at the law, there's a lot more written into requirements around parent and family engagement and communications with parents that are required under ESSA that were not there under No Child Left Behind. So it was a huge pendulum swift shift, sorry, a huge pendulum shift in, in the direction of states defining how they're going to do things except in this one area of parent family engagement. Um, it's the only area where we saw uh, the, the shift actually go farther in the other direction uh, at the federal level. So, first thing I'm going to talk about a little bit is about some of the terminology changes. So, remember, if, if you have questions at any time, go ahead and type them in the chat. So, under No Child Left Behind, we, we talked about parent involvement. Um, you know, this was amended uh, under ESSA to parent and family engagement. Uh, and I, I really believe part of the requirement, part of the reasoning behind this is because when you think about parent involvement, uh, you know, there there are, I, I, I worked for a State Department of Education and I helped monitor school districts. And uh, I can attest that there are some school districts who will try to get away with things because they don't want to do them. So, um, you know, maybe they're short staffed, uh, you know, or, or maybe there's a bad actor. It's just uh, and, and I'm not going to say one way or the other. Most educators I work with are hardworking, dedicated people, but I have met some folks who maybe they're hardworking, but uh, they, they, their heart wasn't in the right place, let's just say. Uh, so if you think about parent involvement, uh, 
a district could claim, yeah, we involve parents, we email them regularly. Uh, but there's no, it's it's a one-way involvement. It's not like a back and forth. There's there's nothing that says, you know, the the there's you know really significant input from the parents. And so, when they made the wording changes, they changed to engagement, which tends to come along with a, a, a you know, a, a deeper meaning related to uh, that. There's more going on that's two-way. Uh, in addition, um, the the addition of family to a lot of things is is included in ESSA. Uh, and that's partly because over time there's been a recognition that not every family is the same. And some students are being raised by grandparents or are in the you know foster care system or or other things are going on so that it's not there are plenty of instances where um, there there is not a parent who is actually raising and might be responsible for the child's education. So they added the terminology for family. Um, guardians, of course, are always in there as well, but parent and family engagement um, actually expands it because in, in some cultures and communities uh, in our country, also the family is much more important when it comes to the child's education. So expanding that was important and, and I think it was the right thing to do. Uh, in, in ESSA, that information is in section 1116 under Title I. So if you want to look that up, uh, that that's good. You can go ahead and do that. Now, if you, uh, uh, shortly after ESSA was passed, there was meetings between state directors and the U.S. Department of Education. And one of the things that the U.S. Department of Education uh, emphasized was this requirement regarding regular parent meetings. So there are meetings with um, parents and they're, they're, they're called regular meetings in the law. Uh, and the US Department of Education emphasized that these are more than a single annual meeting. In other words, this is not a once a year meeting. Regular meetings means you, you know, more than once a year. Now they didn't go as far as defining how many times that more than once a year is. And so uh, it just, they basically emphasize it has to be more than once a year. Uh, and so technically you could meet those requirements with twice a year, uh, but their recommendations were more than, you know, insinuated that, you know, it was multiple meetings, not just one or two. So uh, any questions so far? None in the chat so far. All right, we'll keep moving. Um, when uh, parent involvement went to parent family engagement uh, under No Child Left Behind, districts um, were required to have what was called a parent involvement policy. So it's it's not really a policy; it's more like a plan of how you're going to um, implement activities that are, are designed to try to uh, engage your parents in the education of their children. Uh, we know from research that. You know, if if parents are engaged in the education of their children, the children tend to be more successful in school. And so under No Child Left Behind, that was called a parent involvement policy. Under ESSA, 
they changed that to parent and family engagement policy. Now, uh, that particular policy, uh, you could use existing or adapt new policies. Uh, again, it's not an official school board policy. Uh, it's more like an, a plan. It doesn't require your school board to adopt this policy. Um, it's more like a plan that you're required to implement under the law. They just call it a policy in the law for some reason, uh, just so that they can confuse everybody, I think. Uh, <laughs> I, well, let's just say the folks who are writing the law often aren't uh, implementing the law. Uh, so anyway, so these plans are for the purpose of implementing the parent family engagement requirements. So uh, there was a shift in that terminology from involvement to engagement. Uh, and the policies are, that are needed at the at the school and district level are still uh, required. They're just uh, uh, things are a little bit different in terms of what's actually uh, required there. The information that's required. So um, there were some changes made to um, try to emphasize the importance of parent family engagement at the district level, especially. So under uh, no Child Left Behind, 1% of your Title I funds could be reserved for parent involvement. Uh, but of that 1% reserved at the district level, you know, so so your school district gets a chunk of Title I money and they have to distribute it to the schools. But they can keep 1% of it for parent uh, involvement under No Child Left Behind. But even that 1%, they had to then, of that 1%, 95% of that 1%, they had to pass down to Title I schools to implement parent family parent involvement um, activities. Now, under ESSA, there's still that 1%. You, under No Child Left Behind, you could reserve more than 1% if you wanted, but you had to reserve at least 1%. Same thing under ESSA. However, they've made a change to how much the district can actually keep to use. Under No Child Left Behind, they could keep just a, a, a small amount, the 5% of that 1%, they've doubled that under ESSA. So now that ESSA funding, um, you can reserve 90%, you, you can, of that 1% set aside, you can keep 10% uh, of that 1% at the district level and 90% goes to districts. They've changed the wording under No Child Left Behind. It was it had to go to Title I schools. Now it has to be given to high need schools. So priority must be given to the high need schools. Uh, but again, the district also has twice as much money to implement district wide activities, uh, which is important to note. But then also it's important to note in the additional requirement that they added under ESSA uh, was that the funds have to be used to carry out activities and strategies that are consistent with the district's parent family engagement policy. So I mentioned those parent family engagement policies on the previous slide, because whatever activities and strategies that you're writing into your parent family engagement policies um, are important because that's how you spend your money. And that's what the feds are trying to communicate to us is we're just not, we're not asking you to just make plans. We're asking you to make plans and implement them, and we're requiring you to set aside funds to do that. So I hope that makes sense. All right, moving on. So if you're familiar with um, the school parent compact uh, or or even your your school parent and family engagement 
policy uh, under no child left behind parent involvement policies and now under ESSA parent family engagement policies um, require that the school level parent and family engagement policy has a school parent compact and that school parent compact is an, is an agreement between the, the school and parents of different activities that the schools and the parents will be implementing uh, to try to um, basically help achieve the academic success of the students. And so those those compacts required some information under under No Child Left Behind. There were three things, you know, you had to discuss the, the parent family engagement compact at the you know, you had to have parent teacher conferences to talk about that. There were frequently reports required to parents and you had to have reasonable access to staff opportunities to volunteer and observe activities. Those things are still included in um, the parent family engagement policy, the school parent compact under ESSA, but it expands that to include that there must be regular two way meaningful communication between family members and school staff to the extent practicable in a language family members can understand. So they added specific language regarding communication with parents. And and I'm going to like. Kind of lean into this a little bit because when you think about. Whether you're truly engaging your family members or not. If they're receiving communications in a language and they don't understand it that precludes meaningful engagement and you know one of the things i said earlier was research proves and shows to us that uh you know when families are involved in the education of their students the students tend to be more successful academically and so if we're excluding families because they are not fluent in english then we're basically excluding some of that capability for those parents to be engaged with the education of their students um, and that's not only uh, you know an issue with ESSA it's also a civil rights compliance issue and so communicating to the extent practical is re regarding written communications uh, the office for civil rights at the U.S. Department of Education and the Department of Justice's civil rights division considers it always practicable to provide oral interpretation for family members. So uh, that's that's a right and that parents have to receive those communications uh, in a language they can understand. All right, so I'm going to start talking about some of the changes to reporting here because there was a lot of additional information that was required and you'll see it uh, in in this coming slides. And, and this is talking about the school and district report cards for the most part. Uh, and these aren't report cards that go home to kids with their school grades. These are the things that schools and districts are required to report out to the community to post on their websites uh, that provide details regarding the performance of the school. And and one of the one of the you know, they're there. They must be provided to the community, but uh, these details also have to be specifically provided to parents so that they know how the school and the district that their students are in are performing compared to the other schools in, in the district and other schools in the state. So there was this, again a significant amount of the type and information included in those report cards. And I'm also going to get into talking about the uh, uh, reporting in those report cards related to English learners and then under Title III. 
pretty quiet out there, but again, if you have questions, please uh, be sure to type them in the chat. Uh, so report just cards. Started. They're, they're listening, but nothing uh, in the chat. Yet. Yeah, no, that's fine. <clears throat> I just want to make sure everyone knows I, I like questions, so send them when you get a chance. Um, anyway, uh, so in this in the slides coming up, there's four of them related to report cards. I have some items in the bullets that are in italics with a kind of an arrow uh, instead of a, a, a dot. <clears throat> the, uh, that information is new information. So if it's if if you see that it's new. So under the previous version of the law in CLB, student achievement on the state's academic assessments was something you had to include in state report, in state district and school report cards. Uh, but Comparative information on achievement and demographics of students in charter schools organized by an authorized public charter chartering agency. Information about charter schools was not required uh, in the report cards under NCLB, and it is in ESSA. A um, couple other things you can see there graduation dates, rates, performance on the other academic indicator um, were there. Uh, there were significant responsibilities moved uh, from Title III to Title I, including uh, accountability for English learners' attainment, uh, progress toward an attainment of English proficiency. So we now have to report out on these school report cards regarding the number and percent of L's attaining English proficiency. That's now a Title I issue. Uh, you won't find accountability for English learners under Title III anymore. Uh, AMAOs are gone if you're familiar with that. So uh, it's it's now all uh, under Title I. Uh, student performance on a new indicator called school quality or student success. Uh, I know a lot of states adopted um, chronic absenteeism because they wanted to address that. And it's even more important um, these days because of the some of the absentee issues we're having post COVID. Uh, so Again, I said there's four slides. Here's uh, some additional. You can see there's one item here that was there before, you know, progress, you know, sharing out on progress toward long term goals and interim measures of progress. But the the remaining number of four things here are all new information that needs to be included. Uh, the percent of students that are assessed or not assessed on state assessments, you know, so that participation rate and assessments, school quality, climate and safety data. You know, in school suspension, out of school suspension rates, expulsions, those types of things, uh, they're now required to be included in your report cards uh, that talk about the performance at your school, the number and percent of students enrolled in preschool programs, uh, per number and percent of students enrolled in accelerated coursework to earn post-secondary credit while still in high school. So those are like your AP and dual enrollment courses where a student can come out of a high school course with college credit. You have to report out on, on that. Um, professional qualifications was there under uh, No Child Left Behind, but now we're looking at uh, the number, uh, the, you know, the two things that were still there, but we're, we've added inexperienced teachers, principals, and other school leaders, which means your state has had to provide some type of guidance or definition of what it means to be inexperienced. And so now you're required to report out on that information. We also have um, information about funding. So per pupil, per pupil expenditures of federal, state, and local funds has to be included in those report cards. 
the number and percent of students with the most significant cognitive disabilities who take the alternate assessment. Um, some people call it the 1% assessment, but it's our students with disabilities who um, basically don't have the, are, are, are so cognitively disabled that they're unable to really participate in um, the, the, uh, the standard assessment without, uh, and be able to show what they can do. So there's alternate assessments so that you can at least show what they can do and measure their progress. And then uh, this one's struggled a little lately because of the uh, interruptions in this particular collection, but uh, information that's reported to the civil rights data collection must also be included on uh, your report cards. And all three of these weren't there before. Uh, results of fourth and eighth graders on the National Assessment of Educational Progress college enrollment rates for high schools. Um, uh, this was this was required under ESEA flexibility, if anybody remembers that. Uh, but this is something that's been um, one of those things that usually is more difficult to track, especially if students attend colleges out of state. Uh, but there are supposed to be mechanisms available at the state level so that you can determine your college enrollment rates um, for high school graduates. So if you're unfamiliar how to do this, then um, I would, if you if you don't have it in place and know what to do and everything else, then contact your uh, folks at your State Department of Education and ask them for assistance because they should be able to help you with this. Uh, but one of the things that I found interesting, and, and there were some things in the law they called cross-cutting things, uh, you know, cross-cutting issues or items. Uh, and, and that was typically related to some of our at-risk students in terms of, uh, actually calling them out. The the law often says all students, but in um, in in our thoughts, uh, oftentimes we're not considering some of those student groups because they're they're included in all students, uh, but they they need to be addressed because of their specific issues. So the reporting now is required. Um, to be disaggregated. In other words, you have to pull out the data for these specific student groups, and those are students experiencing homelessness, students in foster care, and students with a parent on active military, uh, a parent or parents on active military duty. So those are three categories of students that have special at-risk um, type, you know, circumstances that they're recognizing and wanting to track so that if they're, you know, and, and they want to see reporting on it, because if you are looking at these students and you're reporting out on them and you can see that they're doing, you know, not nearly as well as other students in the in the district, then there may be something that you need to do to help provide services so that those students can be successful. Uh, so that's that's a huge piece to me. Uh, especially students experiencing homelessness and students in foster care because of the um, just some of the, you know, the emotional and, and mental issues that they may be going through being in those circumstances. Uh, it's it's it can be really uh, not easy. Uh, students in with parents on active duty, especially if they're uh, in a militarized zone, can also have some uh, special circumstances that need to be 
uh, taken into consideration. All right, so let's shift gears a little bit. I'm going to um, shift over to to talk a little bit about some of the changes in Title III. Uh, if you if you uh, are familiar with No Child Left Behind's Title III, there was a section that was called Evaluations, and it was Section 3121. Uh, under ESSA, they changed it and it's now titled Reporting because there was uh, there was some changes made in how they're managing things under ESSA. They took accountability out of Title III and put it in Title I, and so they decided to change the evaluation side of things uh, because it's under accountability where you really see a lot of that evaluations piece and to change it to reporting. So this is information that you have to report out to uh, at least the state and provide uh, upon request to parents in the community. Uh, so this is a big shift, a big change in, in the way uh, things are to be reported. And so there are there were data elements um, in there in there are data elements in the in the in Title III now, Section 3121. Uh, and there's seven different reporting things, uh, requirements that are listed there um, that are not connected. These are not connected to state and, and district report cards or school report cards required by Title I. So this is a separate reporting category. This is reporting that's required under Title III. Um, and the reporting isn't like directly to parents. Uh, it's it's more like to uh, your district, your district to the state and the state to the, the federal government, the US Department of Education. But if if you are asked for this information, it's public information and you must provide it. So it's, it's important to to know this and and uh, that you need to provide that and provide that information. So again, new information is going to be italicized with that special bullet. So uh, some of the highlights of what's included under reporting for Title III are are these things here. So. The description of programs and activities funded by Title III was there under uh, No Child Left Behind. But when you look at the second bullet, the number and percent of L's making progress towards achieving English proficiency and um, in the aggregate was required under No Child Left Behind. It now needs to be disaggregated by L's with disabilities. So you have to report how your entire L subgroup is doing on achieving English proficiency, but then you have to pull out the group of students with disabilities that are also English learners and report separately on that subgroup. Uh, had to report on a, a number of percent of L's attaining English proficiency in that exit L programs, uh, but the number of percent of L's meeting state standards for four years um, after exiting L's has to be reported it was did have to be reported under No Child Left Behind in the aggregate, but again, this now needs to be um, disaggregated by ELs with disabilities. And then um, the the new piece is um, this number and percent of ELs who have not attained English proficiency within five years of initial L classification or long-term ELs. And long-term ELs is a was something on that was gaining more and more attention under No Child Left Behind uh, because it wasn't something that was being tracked or uh, you know, thought about or treated in a sense. Uh, it wasn't something that was often actively being identified and addressed. Uh, and so 
because of that and because of the fact that there are some some things that you can do at a district level that can help move those students, uh, give them that little bump forward to uh, so that they can uh, attain English proficiency. Uh, if you have specifically designed programs to address those long term L's and some of the communication issues are, are part of this as well. Uh, so they were recognizing the need for that, and that's why they put this. Um, reporting requirement in there related to long term else. And I find it interesting that just about every place they go, oh, anything else your state wants you to include. So <clears throat> if you're in a state that says you also need to report this information, well, you have to report it. Uh, but I, I can't tell you what that would be state by state. All right, so some of the changes made under parent family uh, engagement uh, regarding English learners, uh, it shifted responsibilities from Title III to Title I, but it expanded other requirements under Title III. So let's let's look at that. So uh, we all know that at the beginning of the school year, we have to provide a notification to parents that that lets them know that their student is identified and placed in an L program. So that was there under No Child Left Behind under Title III. And you can see it was Section 3302. If you really want to go try to find a copy of No Child Left Behind and look it up. Uh, however, under ESSA, that's changed. Uh, you won't find that requirement under Title III. It's now under Title I in Section 1112E3A, um, and it's a district-level requirement uh, for districts that use Title I or Title III funds to provide L programs. And I specifically call out that this is a district-level requirement because not all districts that receive Title I funds have not all of the schools in those districts necessarily receive Title I funds. However, Title I at the district level is required to make this, you know, this is a Title I requirement at the district level to make sure that <clears throat> English learners, the parents of English learners in all schools in the districts, regarding whether, regardless of whether they receive Title I funds or not, all those schools in the district must um, notify the parents, all those, uh, the districts must notify all the parents in all the schools, regardless of whether they receive Title I funds uh, of the identification and or placement in an L program at the beginning of the school year. Um, there's mid-year requirements. It's like two weeks from placement in an L program mid-year. Uh, but that's now a requirement under Title I, not Title III. So meetings for parents of English learners. Uh, I talked a little bit about this earlier. Uh, there was a shift in, in, in wording in um, in No Child Left Behind from No Child Left Behind to ESSA, and there was also a shift of where those that, that, that information is found. So there were requirements for these meetings um, with the parents of English learners uh, to uh, respond to the recommendations of parents. And under No Child Left Behind, it was called receipt of recommendations. Uh, under ESSA, that that section of the law has been pulled out of Title I unchanged other than, and it's been pulled out of Title III, sorry, and put into Title I unchanged other than the title of the, the section. So under No Child Left Behind, it was receipt of recommendations. Under Title I, it's regular meetings is the title of that. And again, um, I, I'll emphasize the U.S. Department of Education says this is more than once a year meeting. It's not your annual meeting with your parents of English learners. And I'll also mention that this is not a school level meeting. 
this is a district level meeting. If you're a Title I funded school, your district cannot meet this requirement if you have a uh, Title I school-wide meeting and talk about the issues you're supposed to talk about with your parents of English learners. This is a district level meeting, not a school level meeting. Uh, so you can't meet this with a school level meeting. It has to be something that targets the parents of all English learners in the school district, not just those in an individual school. And this is one of the areas where I think we see uh, some of the some expansion that's uh, really significant to me. Um, under No Child Left Behind Title III, there were two required activities, programs to increase English proficiency and academic achievement of L's and professional development for educators who are working with English learners, regardless of whether they were, uh, they didn't, this didn't have to be targeted towards your um, ESL certified teachers or your L certified teachers. This is for anybody who is working, who has English learners in the classroom or English learners in their school if you're an administrator or English learners in your district if you're an administrator at the district level. So principals, superintendents, this professional development could be targeted towards any of those groups, but specifically there's been a lot of emphasis on targeting um, content teachers who may not necessarily have a lot of experience working with English learners in the classroom, may not understand some of the strategies that are best to help those English learners acquire that content knowledge. Uh, there's a lot of parallels between ESSA and civil rights requirements. So civil rights requirements, when it, when you're talking about L programs, there are two things that are required your, your programs must do, and that is they must help your English learners attain English proficiency, and they must help your English learners uh, acquire content knowledge. Okay, so they have to learn and they have to, you know, learn, become proficient in English. So those are the two, they have to be able to learn and do that. Uh, and you see that in the very first item that's required. Uh, so th those two things uh, were, were required under ESSA, the, that civil rights aligned issue and the professional learning. Now, ESSA has added a third piece. Uh, you are now required using your Title III funds to implement parent, family, and community engagement activities. Uh, Title III is an interesting uh, part of the law. It, in Title III, in Title I, uh, and let's say even Title II, which, which deals a lot with, um, you know, uh, teacher and, and educator, uh, professional learning and opportunities and things like that. Uh, Title Title II has specific requirements regarding, you know, activities that must be done for teachers regarding professional learning. Title I can actually help pay for some of those things. So Title II can say, yes, we're implementing those things and Title I is paying for it. However, when it comes to Title III, Title III, when you read the law, it says you must spend your Title III funnies, funnies, monies on these activities. And these are the three things you must spend your Title III money on. So even if it's just $5, you have to spend money on these three things. You can't not spend Title III money. Uh, I, I've monitored states, um, and what we would do is go to the state and talk to them, and then we would visit three, two, two, two to four school districts, and we would talk to them about how they're using their Title um, Title III funds. And I remember very distinctly when 
once one school district that we visited and they were using their title two funds to provide professional development for uh, regarding uh, English learners. And they thought they were meeting the requirements of the law under title three. But the well, the folks who were monitoring the programmatic side of this thing said no. Uh, the law says you have to spend Title III money on it, and you're not spending any Title III money on professional learning. They were basically meeting the requirements of Title III, but with other funds, and because it was other funds, it didn't meet the requirements of Title III. So you have to spend Title III money on these things. So in the law, where it says you have to spend money on something, um, Title I has parent and family engagement all over the place, and, and it's found in other parts of the law as well. But when it comes to community engagement, there's no other place in the law where there's a reference to you must spend money on community engagement. And because there are you know, some interesting supplanting requirements in um, Title Title Three that basically tell you, hey, you have to spend your money on parent family engagement, which is required under Title I, uh, it, it can get to be real confusing. Uh, and so one of the things that uh, I recommend districts do when they're looking at trying to meet this third requirement of spending Title III money on parent, family, and community engagement, that they focus on community engagement activities because parents and families will be involved in those community engagement activities. And it is it is an area that is not a required expenditure under Title I. Title I has requirements um, regarding making information available to communities, but there are no mandates to engage communities. It has like recommendations and things like that, but there's there's nothing that says you have to spend your Title I funds on community engagement. So I recommend that you use your Title III funds uh, when you're looking at this third required activity to to meet those uh, to, uh, on community engagement because it covers parents and families as well. Dr. Holbrook, I know we'll be getting into this a little bit in the second hour, but could, in your experience visiting some of those school districts, can you maybe give some practical examples of things that you have uh, seen um, districts implement uh, regarding community engagement with multilingual families? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, one of the things that that I saw that um, was often uh, a really effective activity was related to um, having a, a community night at the library. And this is especially effective for your, your parents who, uh, you know, want their kids to be able to have access to reading materials and things like that. And, uh, and so uh, they would have a library night. They would use their funds to potentially, you know, purchase uh, a book for the parents to, you know, for for their students or for the parents themselves, um, there's a there's a company I'm not gonna um, that that produces a, a book that helps parents with um, knowing how to uh, help their students with homework and they they provide it in multiple languages. Uh, so it's it's a it's a it's a a help for parents to help their kids with their homework. Uh, and, and, you know, things like that, that they would provide to the parents, but they would do it. They would have these uh, events, a community event at like a, um, a a library, and then they would use that opportunity to sign up, you know, sign the kids up and the parents up for library cards. 
So it was like an activity. Part of the activity of that night was making sure that everyone had a library card so that they could take advantage of their public libraries. Uh, there, there are sometimes uh, events in communities that you can um, basically go in and have a table or participate in some way so that the school is actually participating in the community event. So you're going into the community and having, um, you know, part being part of uh, the, the event so that there's a presence for the school there. Uh, and there are other things that uh, can be done as well regarding other community activities that may not necessarily be specific to um, a particular, you know, one of one of your uh, language groups, but there are community activities that are happening that you can invite. Um, so it's it's kind of a two way thing. You can go into the events that your your L communities are hosting, but then you can also invite those L communities into events of the larger community so that they become aware of of what's happening uh, in, in the larger. Uh, community within which they are a member of. Does that make sense, Tyler? Yeah, it does. Now tell me, um, are there any restrictions? So you gave the example of a library uh, 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 events, inviting parents in. Are there any like restrictions for what if a native English speaking family wanted to come? Like, is there uh, some, is it disallowed because you're using the funds for multilingual families or do, or they get that particular? Well, when you're thinking about these types of activities, OK, and really just about any activity that you can you you might implement from the school, there's always that, you know, thought that, well, somebody else might be interested and want to participate. And, and that's usually something that is not frowned upon. Um, if there's a, an additional benefit for another uh, for for a member of the community and and they want to come and they show up, uh, then I think that's a that that is I think that's a good thing and it's not something that you're going to get dinged for. Uh, so if if you are targeting specifically uh, the the community the L community and others find out about it and want to participate, then uh, there's usually no problem with that. Uh, because it's not like if you say we're going to organize this community using Title III funds, you know, to benefit our English learners, and then you invite everyone in the in their brother, uh, instead of just targeting, you know, the parents of your English learners and their families and their communities, then you can run into a little bit of trouble because uh, you, you're not treating it any differently than anything else. But if you're specifically targeting uh, you know, your parents, families and communities of your English learners and and there's some, you know, additional benefit that others you, know, you receive. Uh, that's and oftentimes the feds will just look at that and that's just a bonus. So, you know, it's, it's not usually uh, a problem in any way. Well, if I can, I'm going to throw out a specific example that I've seen and sure. what you tell me, do you think that it would be allowable to use Title Three funding? In scenarios in schools, a lot of times we see, um, you know, uh, schools that are highly populated by native Spanish speakers or other languages, uh, just by nature of the population surrounding the school, it's, you know, it's mostly multilingual families. So I've seen, uh, you know, I've been involved with some organizations that uh, 
that help install school gardens. And that's something that I'm, I've been passionate about. Some ho hobby of mine personally, I love gardening. And so I've helped schools install school gardens. And I've seen some schools really utilize that method to engage families, go so far as to do cooking classes related to the food, and then use that as an opportunity as well to teach English. At the time, I know that the school was not using Title III funds for it. I'm just curious, you know, from your your perspective, is uh, doing something like that to try to engage communities, and you, would that be an allowable method to use Title III funding on an activity like that? Yeah, and a lot of these activities are because of the supplement not supplying requirements under Title III. You have to look at them on a case-by-case -case basis, and so I always recommend that you know, you talk to uh, either your district or the district talks to the state to make sure that, you know, it's it's an allowable use of funds. Uh, however, I'm, I'm going to say um, if you're doing this and you're using, you're not using Title III funds and then you want to shift and start using Title III funds, that's going to end up being a, a supplanting issue because one of the tests is did you use, you know, state uh, other funds to pay for this before you decided to shift, before you decided to put Title III funds in it. So if you're using other funds to pay for it, then yeah, it becomes a supplanting issue because you can't um, replace funds that you were spending on this previously. Uh, however, if it's if you're deciding this is going to be a new activity and you're going to design a component into it um, that includes or if you're going to say, OK, this is a community engagement activity and we're only going to include our you know, parents, families and communities of our English learners, then that's not a that's a no brainer in a sense because you're bringing them together and you're providing those services to help, you know, with not only engaging the parents, but uh, as you mentioned, having those uh, teaching English components of it as well. Uh, but if you're implementing something with multiple funding streams and you want to have a component that's specific to your um, L community, then I think that's allowable as well under Title III, uh, as long as you know you're you're meeting the in, intents and purposes of the law. It's a community engagement activity, uh, and you're uh, doing it to try to benefit. Uh, the not only the, the the students but the parents in terms of language acquisition, then I, I think it's a valid uh, use of of funding because you're trying to engage parents, families, and the community. And in something that will, you know, actually potentially have interest to those groups. So moving forward, I, I wanted to talk a little bit uh, last couple of slides here about the expansion of family in uh, in ESSA. Uh, no Child Left Behind had a lot to say about parents, but family was often left out. Uh, there wasn't really a lot of mention of it. And I talked a little bit earlier about, uh, you know, the, the fact that there's a, a huge recognition that all families aren't the same, that some students are being raised by grandparents or in the foster care system or by others. And so uh, that idea of family is, uh, you know, by aunts or uncles or whatever, but that idea of family needed to be included because uh, the those educational decision makers aren't always just the parents or sometimes the parents aren't in even in the equation anymore. So they've added family in a lot of places. Uh, so under Title III, you, you see it under Title I, but you also see it under Title III. Um, 
you, under you know to promote parental and family and community participation. Uh, it it's talks about parent and and community participation under No Child Left Behind and family was added in ESSA. Uh, Title three plans have to describe how the district will promote parent, family, and community engagement. Uh, the addition of families is also found in uh, the consultation requirements regarding the content of district Title three plans. Uh, it didn't NCLB didn't include uh, this. So uh, this idea of including families in a lot of different things. So we we've always seen the requirements for you know including parents in in uh, consulting for different things regarding uh, federal programs. Uh, now that now that parents is parents it now includes family as part of that as well. So those that that's a big expansion under um, under uh, ESSA to add this word family. Uh, the you know so it, it's it's included in Title III grant authorized. In other words, those that are allowable, they're not required activities. So there's a lot of there's we talked about those three required activities. Uh, Title three has authorized, which are allowable activities. So if you spend your money on those three activities and you have some leftover, there's a number of things they say that you can do. And family is is added to all of those things. Um, and there's a sub grant of Title three called the immigrant grant, and this is for um, families that are new to the education system in the in the United States and the addition of family is included to all of those things as well. So there's there's a lot of uh, information that's uh, in the law in Title I and in Title III that is now including family. We talked earlier about how we went from parent involvement and the parent involvement policy, like the, the section 1116 was parent involvement under No Child Left Behind. It's now parent and family engagement, and we don't have parent involvement policies anymore. We have parent and family engagement policies. So you've got all of these things where family has been added, and that's a significant change, and it's one that uh, definitely needs to be recognized and implemented. Uh, so I'm, I'm at the end of my presentation, so if there are any uh, questions or, or comments you would like to make. Uh, again, I, I, I have two jobs. I'm executive director for, for TransAct for their um, federal programs and state relationships. I, I work mostly with their parent notices software, but I'm also the executive director of the National Association of English Learner Program Administrators. And this is a national organization that provides support and assistance uh, to uh, educators working with English learners in the classroom and in in English learner programs uh, across the country. Uh, we have a national conference, quarterly webinars, monthly networking, coffee chats, uh, lots of ways to connect and lots of um, wonderful professional learning through that organization. I don't know if you're able to throw up anything in the chat so that folks can connect with either one of those orgs, but uh, that would be great. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Holbrook. Uh, very informative. Uh, we I have dropped your email address in the chat as well as uh, information on NAOPA's conference where you can also view other uh, information related to the organization, see how to get involved. This year's conference is in uh, New Orleans, uh, kind of precedes the NABE, National Association for Bilingual Education Conference. I know Dr. Holbrook will be there. Uh, I'll be there. Uh, some from our team will be there. So we we hope to see you there and see uh, how you might be able to 
get involved because we know uh, you guys have uh, area of expertise as well that is beneficial to us all. So love to work with you there. Yeah, I'll mention a couple of things coming up from NELPA on, on uh, November 14th is our not only our next coffee chat, but we also have our next quarterly webinar on that same date. And then on December 6th, uh, NELPA and the National Association of ESEA State Program Administrators, uh, this is the group that hosts the National ESEA Conference. Uh, we are on December 6th doing a joint webinar on um, talking about the English learner requirements under Title I and uh, what states and districts are doing to try to use Title I funds to support English learners. So if you're interested in that topic, um, you can, uh, we'll, we'll have something posted on it on the uh, NELPA website soon. Uh, registration isn't quite open yet, uh, but you will also be able to find that on the, um, the national, uh, the ESEA uh, program administrator's site. It's uh, ESEANetwork.org. Uh, so if you if you want to look there, uh, but we will have something on our website soon. Uh, probably within by the end of the week, we'll have something there. And we will be right back. Are you ready to take your K through 12 multilingual programs to new heights? Look no further than the experts at Kelly B's Consulting. We're not just consultants, we're partners in education with a passion for empowering students and enriching your classrooms. At Kelly B's Consulting, we understand the unique cultural and linguistic needs of your diverse student population. Our team of experienced educators will work alongside you, tailoring strategies that transform your multilingual programs. Don't miss out on this opportunity. Visit www.kellybsconsultingllc.com today to learn more and schedule your consultation. Kelly B's Consulting, shaping the future of K-12 multilingual education across the nation. Your success is our commitment. Contact us now and let's start building a brighter tomorrow together. And now, back to the show. All right. So... We next will be moving on from uh, more of the kind of the policy standpoint to compliance at EdgeSkills. We definitely um, have, we understand the importance of family and community engagements and have put a lot of time and resources and effort into building programs and a platform that can support you and your efforts to engage families. Uh, so we'll be touching on that briefly, but uh, we'll be handing it over here in just a second to Dr. Kelly Forbes uh, to uh, kind of zero in and focus on uh, implementation. How, what can we do uh, just at a broad level, uh, not, not dependent on a product or a service, but what are things that we can do on a broad level to support families? So um, here in a few minutes, we'll uh, be able to hear from Dr. Kelly Forbes. Um, Dr. Kelly Forbes went from being a Royal Caribbean singer and dancer to a newcomer teacher teaching 6th through 12th grade newcomer students who represented seven countries and spoke eight different languages. He also loved to bring his dog to class. I've known Kelly since the point at which he was working as a teacher, actually played a small part in helping him 
get uh, moved from uh, being the, the on the Caribbean line to the classroom uh, and have enjoyed our friendship since that point. Um, his students taught him the value of culture, interconnectivity, and the richness of our identity. From there, Dr. Forbes has been blessed to serve in a variety of capacities, such as instructional coach, assistant uh, principal, one-way immersion, dual language head principal, director of ESSER, a director of dual language pre-K-12 education. Now, Dr. Forbes holds a current superintendent certification and serves as the lead education consultant for Kelly B's Consulting, LLC, which provides educational services to support districts and schools in closing opportunity gaps, specifically supporting the emergent bilingual multilingual populations. In 2014, he was afforded the opportunity to present his research and findings at the University Council Education Administration in Washington, DC. Dr. Forbes serves as the current past president of the Oklahoma Association for Bilingual Education and serves on the board of directors for Polymar, which is the first family justice center in Oklahoma. He is a recipient, recipient of the 2016 Global Citizen and Public Education Award from the World Experiences Foundation and the 2011 Rising Star Award from Multicultural Institute at the University of Central Oklahoma. Dr. Forbes recently achieved his Doctor in Education Administration at, and Leadership from Southern Nazarene University, researching the role that cultural proficiency plays in providing an equitable education for all students. And he believes that it's through our diversity that we find unity. Intercultural connectivity and allyship uplifts us all. His philosophy is simple. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And remember, to make today the very best day for this day begins the rest of our lives. On a side note, Dr. Forbes is also an animal and dog lover, and his ultimate career goal is to be a bilingual dancing veterinarian. So if you know anyone who is hiring for this position, please let Dr. Forbes know. He's searching, waiting for somebody to offer him that job. <laughs> So with that, I will hand it off and be interjecting through the presentation here and there, uh, uh, but we'll uh, hand it off to Dr. Kelly Forbes. We're uh, honored and blessed to have you here with us today. Well, hey, it's an honor to be here. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Excellent, excellent. Well, hey, thank you so much. I want to say um, truly a special thank you to Dr. Uh, Taylor Tribble for affording me the opportunity to be here with all of you today, um, as well as uh, Lori and Mike there with the EduSkills team. And Dr. Holbrook, thank you so much for really setting the stage for this conversation about some of those um, policies and laws and regulations that we have that help guide us in the work um, that we're doing for our multilingual and our um, multicultural families that we have in our district. I'm really excited to be here with all of you today. I have shared the presentation in the chat, and so please feel free to click on that. If you have any questions or anything during the presentation, please put those in the chat as well so we can answer those um, in the moment, and there'll also be time for some Q&A at the end if you would like to wait. Um, and also, uh, Dr. Holbrook, during this presentation, if there's anything that you see that makes a good connection, please feel free to interject as well. And Dr. Treble, I'm really thankful that I get to be here with you and present with you. So. 
with that, uh, I'm glad to see some some people here that I do know, uh, and I'm really thankful that you are attending today. And I'm also excited to see some new names, and I'm just thankful to get to meet you in this um, platform that we have currently celebrating our uh, multilingual families and discussing ways that we can best engage them in our practices in our school district. Um, so you've heard a little bit about me. You also um, have heard a little bit about Dr. Taylor Tribble, who is the founder and the CEO, the president of EduSkills. Um, I was fortunate to be, uh, and during this time, if you all don't mind, if you'll just put in the chat maybe uh, wh uh, where you're from, a district, what state, something like that, just to kind of get to know each other just for a quick second. Um, but then as you're typing uh, that in, um, again, it was uh, it was really interesting the way that I was able to meet Dr. Tribble and how he helped me get into the field of education coming off of Royal Caribbean Cruise Line as a singer and dancer. And it was really great to travel the world uh, on the cruise ship. And of course, I really love that. I mean, who wouldn't? But at the same time, I really found um, a true appreciation for being in a school within four walls and still traveling the, the world at the exact same time. Um, but Dr. Uh, Treble was uh, you know, also an educator um, who turned into, as he calls himself, an accidental entrepreneur. And um, I was fortunate to be the first director to implement edge skills in a school district and see the great benefits that were there. Um, so here in the chat, it's fun to see we have friends from uh, Chickasha, Oklahoma, Clinton Public Schools. Shout out to Krista, Edmund Public Schools. Erica, it's so good to see you here. Um, Inspire Nola, um, you're here as well. Uh, we also have uh, Prince George's County Public Schools. Welcome, glad to see you here. Representatives from Muskogee, um, some more from uh, Maryland and Prince George's County. And um, yes, and there was a comment in there to share this presentation. Again, I will make sure. Uh, Dr. Tribble, if you don't mind, could you find that link and please share that link one more time in the chat for our participants today? I will do it. Thank you so much. We also have people in from Colorado. Shout out to you, Shelly, good to see you, or I guess have you here virtually. Idabel Public Schools as well. Um, Epic Charter Schools here in Oklahoma, welcome. We also have Miss Sarah May, she's an instructional coach at Western Heights, and we'll be bragging about Western Heights and some of their great um, achievements that we've seen with the implementation of EduSkills and having these conversations around family engagement as well as academic services through our English language acquisition plans. Um, some other shout outs from, yeah, PG, CPS, Prince George's County. Um, there's a lot here from Poto, Idabel here in Oklahoma. We're just so glad to have all of you. So thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Um, also, Ron from Western Heights, glad to see you as well. And um, yeah, and Michelle, I'm glad that I pronounced it correctly as well for Chickasha. So I'm just so glad to be with all of you. It's really fun just to consider all of the types of experiences that we have in our school districts um, all across the nation and how enriching it is for us to be participating with our multilingual and our multicultural communities and our families. And again, Dr. Holbrook, thank you so much for setting that platform and giving us some of those guidelines as to what that looks like in um, the legal terms um, and what we should be doing. But also now we can discuss a little bit more um, and enhance that conversation with the practicalities of what that can look like within your school district. As we go through all of this, again, please ask your questions, be greedy, participate in the meantime. And um, I, um, I just hope that we give you the information that you need. 
So with that, um, I am going to hand this off for a second over to our host, Dr. Taylor Tribble. He has published articles for COSA here within Oklahoma, but also for NIALPA. And I wanted to give him a chance to be able to discuss a little bit about the articles that he has published. Um, and just for everyone's information, there are embedded links in all of the slides of this, so that way you yourselves also have access to this information. So I'm going to pass this on over to you, Dr. Tribble, if you would like to discuss a little bit about the articles that you've published. Absolutely. Thank you for the time to share. So, um, you know, I am a former educator and as you mentioned, an accidental entrepreneur who just got into uh, business because I felt like I could help more schools by running the company than I could uh, in an individual school district. And I, at the time, working for public schools was passionate about uh, serving families and parents. So I was excited, have been excited about being involved with the National Association for English Language Program Administrators and able to contribute to their uh, quarterly newsletter. And in August, I shared the link to uh, the newsletter. On page seven is the article that Dr. Forbes is referencing. So won't, uh, you know, read through every point. And I know, Dr. Forbes, you're going to be getting into any more, even more detail as far as what are some of the key components uh, around supporting families. But if I had to pick kind of what are the what's the best bang for your buck out of all the things that we that are referenced in that article, really encourage you guys to create parent advisory committees uh, with families that uh, are speakers of a other language that have multilingual students in the classroom. Uh, when they become part of the school and are engaged and are looked to for the value that they bring to the school, for the assets that they bring to the school, uh, it, it changes the dynamic in your school. So as much as you can get them involved, create a committee where it's uh, where they are part of that committee and maybe a leader of a committee uh, to, to help kind of move the discussion forward and to help kind of help the school system and the, the school stakeholders understand their culture and language and values. Uh, so that's uh, invaluable, will provide you invaluable opportunities uh, and really increase engagement and ultimately student uh, acts, uh, success. Uh, so I think that's one thing that uh, really would has a lot of return on investment as well hosting events led by parents of ethnically and linguistically diverse students um you know we're typically looking uh, we, we typically take the deficit approach and we're thinking oh we need to help these poor people but they they come to us with so many assets and we need to recognize that allow them to host events that uh, are where they're able to share their language and culture with the, the school and the school system and lastly, you know, taking advantage of technology tools that are available to the school system. So um, make sure that you read through the article, get from it what you can. Uh, but those are kind of some of the highest uh, return on investments I think that you can get by uh, kind of th those efforts of engaging families uh, in your school system. With that, I'll pass it back to you, Dr. Forbes. Excellent. All right. 
Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, in the meantime, I also saw that there is uh, El, El Reno in Putnam City on here from Oklahoma. So I wanted to make sure to give you the proper shout out as well. If I've missed anyone, I'll, I'll, I'm trying to go back through and give you a shout oh, out. Oh, if you mentioned Colorado, we got some people from Colorado here. Yes, yeah, saw Colorado as well. This is just really fantastic. Um, as you're talking about this, Dr. Tribble, and then participants, there's also another article um, right here for you from Dr. Taylor Tribble. But I want to just say, um, before we move on, a, a special thank you for your service in doing this. This is this is such an important topic, and I feel like um, two hours worth of a conversation is, is wonderful, and I'm glad that we get to have this, but I just want to encourage you that as we're going through this to consider what those future conversations can look like within your districts, again, to really find ways that we can engage not just our families um, and what that might look like in a very diverse way itself, but also considering the community at large. Um, and I'm just really glad to be here. But to continue with what Dr. Tribble was discussing, there were five key takeaways that we found that asset recognition and really thinking about the assets and the funds of knowledge that our families and our students bring into our school districts all of the time and trying to find ways that we can engage ourselves in the community to be able to expand upon the assets that are already being brought forward by these families and using those assets in ways that give us more leverage and a trajectory to be able to be really intentionally engaged in the communities that we are serving within our schools. Again, going back to that agradecimiento, um, that, that thankfulness and thanking you all again for that service that we are providing. Um, in ways that we can um, build our community um, and again, with those resources, uh, I'm really thankful again that Dr. Holbrook was here today to discuss um, ways that we can really leverage the language support. And so again, I would encourage all of you to take a look at Transact, but also within the laws that were shared. I really appreciate being able to sometimes take the emotion out of the conversation and just going back and looking at what the law and the guidelines give us when it comes to what communication would look like with our multilingual families within our district, and then trying to find ways that we can actually enhance that and ensure that happening. So I always put it through the filter myself, anything that is being done in one language, which would be English mostly, is done in every other single language to the very best of our ability to all of our families as well to help with that engagement um, uh, at, our, uh, at our local and our community overall level. Um, but then again, also leveraging technology. Now we know that we deal with a whole lot of compliance in our field for Title III for the um, our English language development programs. And um, whether it be any other platform, but specifically thinking about edge skills and the ways that we're able to continue with our family engagement, not only through the compliance aspect, but finding ways to have them engaged and helping them understand, our families understand ways that they can help ensure and continue within that academic uh, journey that their students are on in the classroom and having that partnership and that relationship and also that engagement overall. I like to talk through this through the framework that I used um, within my research, which um, this framework right here, the conceptual framework for culturally proficient practices. And this framework has really helped me think about the ways in which we have guiding principles to cultural proficiency, but also barriers that we may or may not be aware that are existing. And so I like to use this as, um, as a lens that I go through, a framework that I consider whenever I'm in conversation with other school districts, um, even whenever I am considering how I respond and react in different situations or scenarios. But considering those that we are serving within our school district, um, this framework right here, it's read from the bottom up. 
And so I like to start on the right hand side and focus on some of those guiding principles of cultural proficiency. Um, and just seeing this as, as what it says here as, as this moral framework of how we conduct ourselves in our school district and in our leadership as well to make sure that we're encouraging this cultural proficiency, not just with our families and the stakeholders in the community at large, but the educators that are in our buildings with boots on the ground serving our students and our families every single day. But just trying to understand that culture is a predominant force in society, that people are served in varying degrees by that dominant culture, and that we also are understanding that the students and the families that we're serving have to be at least bicultural to be able to participate at the same level as a monolingual, um, fluent English speaking um, someone who might be from your local area, they're just gonna be processing through that one culture whenever other families have to be at least bicultural, if not multicultural in some of these arenas, right? And so on the left-hand side of that, we see the barriers to cultural proficiency and trying to understand about maybe that resistance to change or not acknowledging it. And what does that look like whenever we consider our practices? Do we have culturally destructive practices or all the way to culturally proficient practices? And whenever you're on this continuum, you're on back and forth all the time. Um, I try to be a good facilitator of information, but I also like to be very vulnerable and call this like the uh, the, the the planet fitness where this is the, the, the no judgment. There's like there's just no judgment in this judgment free zone that we have right here. So we can try to continue to be better the more that we learn from each other, work together and collaborate together and engage ourselves. And we're engaged within the community so that as we can be overall. So that helps us really start to identify which practices are unhealthy and which ones are really healthy. And with that, though, you have those five essential elements for culturally profit for culturally proficient practices. Um, and of course, it's assessing cultural knowledge, value and diversity, managing the dynamics of difference. Um, adapting to diversity and institutionalizing cultural knowledge. And again, I want to go back to a little bit of what Dr. Holbrook was mentioning before in the very first hour of this presentation. Um, but that really uh, that that component that is in this framework of assessing cultural knowledge. And the more that we get to assess that cultural knowledge and the understanding of who we are and our own journeys through our levels of cultural proficiency on this continuum, but also engaging the stakeholders that we have, this lets us know in better ways that we can respond with our community and not doing things for or at the community, if that makes sense. Um, some examples here on that continuum from your unhealthy to your healthy practices. I was just very much um, very culturally disruptive in certain ways and didn't always recognize that whenever I first began. I believe that as educators that we come in with our hearts and our sleeves and that we always want to make sure that we're doing the very best possible for the students that we are serving, for those little humans that are in our classrooms. Um, at the same time, though, I wasn't very aware of all of the literature and the research that was out about the multilingual brain, um, multilingual, multidiverse families. And so, for example, whenever I was that newcomer teacher, specifically at a middle school teaching sixth through eighth grade, um, the classroom, again, represented seven countries and eight different languages. I was very just stuck on English only in the classroom, just that target language, not considering how I was taking away part of not only an asset that the student was bringing to the classroom, but I was also taking away part of that child's identity and how that might trickle into the actual family component of their engagement and their involvement in the school as well. 
Um, and then you can consider what that looks like on this um, on this continuum all the way over to cultural proficiency as whenever we really seek the difference and esteem it as an advocate esteem as an advocate um, for equity and we celebrate that. And so even doing things in our classrooms, such as translanguaging practices and using that entire linguistic repertoire of students, that's going to be engaging for them. It's also going to help them with their academic success. But that's going to be a strategy that we can use because we understand that that is an asset that they bring. And so I, I want to ask ourselves, how are we doing that same type of thought process for our families and making sure that we're finding those assets that they bring and coupling that with some of the requirements or the desires that we have in our school district as leaders to make sure that we have the richest multicultural engagement possible of all of our stakeholders in our district. Because again, it really is that unity and our differences that help us become better at what we're doing overall for our district and for our community. So as we're going through this, consider what that might look like. Um, and just, you know, if you want to share out, feel free to do so, but also maybe um, just keep this to yourself and just have that safe zone again where we're thinking, okay, was this a practice that was maybe not such a healthy practice like I thought it might be? Or was this something that was really ensuring that I was trying to, to break down every single barrier to help our students, our families, and the community at large be able to be um, to participate in what we're doing in our school district? So I'm not going to speak too much to this because we have already gone over some of the legalities, but there are those legal requirements that we see for a multilingual parent um, involvement and engagement through Title III. Um, just to speak to those just real quickly, and we'll skim past this, and we can always come back to it later if needed, but those considerations about how are we really promoting the engagement that we want? Are we doing that linguistically with our awareness, knowing which languages are on that home language survey and which those parents do require translation or interpretation? Do we have programs? and platforms such as EduSkills or Transact to be able to make sure that we're um, implementing our um, English language development or dual language education program, et cetera, programs um, equitably with that information for all of our stakeholders. And what type of information are we getting back from our stakeholders so that way we can be working with them and again, building upon their assets? Um, and what kind of, of consultation are we having? Are we really bringing in our families? Are we bringing in that one teacher who happens to also be a parent in the meeting. And I have to admit that I have worked um, uh, uh, in districts and even in schools where um, it was last minute and we were trying to, because I know that the reality is that there was just so many things going on all of the time and we would sometimes um, need to find a parent, but they were also an educator. Um, so did it fulfill the requirement? Yes. But was it the best practice? It wasn't. Um, and I'm glad that I've been able to learn and, and, and to grow from that. So I want to encourage ourselves to grow from that as well. Um, again, what types of other, um, not just engagement activities, but maybe literacy um, activities do we have for our families? Many times we have teachers, um, at least in my experience, where the teachers say like, hey, uh, like, Senor Kelito, that's what sometimes I'm called con cariño, with love. Uh, Mr. Kelly, uh, I want to learn Spanish. How can I, how, what's the best way for me to learn Spanish? And so I will tell uh, schools and districts that I think that the best way for teachers and educators to want to learn another language is, and especially Spanish in this case, is that they learn alongside with their families. They're wanting to learn that other language, that additional language, because the people that they are serving, the other people in their community speak that language as well. And so if we can't always speak their language, we can sit at the same table, we can eat together, we can dance to the same music, but we can set up things um, like literacy classes, for example, where parents get to work with the educators and educators get to work with parents. And you can do this in such a 
way where you where the person facilitating this implements those same types of sheltered instruction practices that we discuss. Um, but at the same time, having that conversation now expanding beyond just what we're trying to learn with our academics and literacy, but we're really bringing community together where we get to have another qualitative approach that ensures qualitative outcomes that we're desiring. Um, and then lastly, I want to just um, discuss with this last slide um, about uh, Title Three, Part A is ways again um, and going um, a little bit more into what or not more, but just adding to the conversation with uh, Dr. Holbrook and Dr. Tribble is about having a, 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 that language instruction education plan that um, most typically, at least specifically for the state of Oklahoma, is sent for your October 1 Title I Consolidated Report and for other states, again, in your Title I report. What is that language instruction education plan? And within that plan, do you have areas where you can have a language acquisition committee where you have parents, teachers, counselors, gifted and talented, special education, um, any any and all of your departments engage in that conversation? And is there also a space for the superintendent's advisory council or for a cabinet advisory council where there are people from the community that are engaged that can really participate in this conversation to help promote and support the English language development program as well as the general academics for those being served in your school district? Some six tips for engaging multilingual families Again, on the bottom of this slide, and again, all the slides, you'll see links to the articles that are referenced for this. But I really like this article from Edutopia. Um, these six tips make it reciprocal, right? Really allowing ways for our parents um, and our families to not just hear from us, but to allow them to be able to share their language and their culture and their identities and how school might be um, from their experiences here within the United States or abroad also, and taking time to learn from our families. So that way we can help, again, make these bridges between the school culture and the culture that we are serving with those represented in our classrooms, as well as aiming for authenticity. I think that this is really um, important because, again, it takes into consideration all of the cultures that are represented and having conversations around what those cultures um, really uh, respect and what they would expect as well and making sure that we are doing this in collaboration again with and that's the key word here doing this with our families and not just doing this because we have compliance under um, ESSA for example but also use culturally um, a, a culturally responsive approach. There were um, even small situations considered in my research where communication needed to happen through a different application on the phone rather than just through text messaging, Facebook, or even emails. And that was through WhatsApp because the community at large used WhatsApp for their communication. So the school found a way that they could adapt to that and incorporate WhatsApp messaging for the families that were mostly engaged on that platform. Another thing is just to keep it simple and to consider what does the process look like whenever we are disseminating information to our stakeholders uh, from enrollment all the way throughout the entire year and ensuring that we have a streamlined process set up so that way families know exactly how, when, and where that they will be receiving information so they can continue to be actively engaged in the um, educational success of their students. Increasing capacity. 
twofold on this. One, you can really create capacity with the stakeholders that you already have in your district. There are families of students that are first, second, third, fourth, five plus years proficient that have already gone through this process. Really take advantage of those family members that are present and have them be leaders in some of these committees that um, you might be able to have in your district because now you get to hear voices from a, a historical perspective and also people that come with a different point of view through the experience themselves, um, especially whenever you consider on the other end, you may have students that are newcomers, very first year in country themselves and with their entire family. Um, the other part of that conversation would be um, to increase that capacity, I really like to think about collective impact and what that looks like. So for example, we find leaders within our community that can be engaged and involved in what we are doing in our school sites and in our school districts and having them be such a part of the conversation that, um, and I always jokingly say that if any one of us on this call happened to win the lottery and go by a private island with a big mansion on it right there on the beach and we go and we move away, that whenever we go and after, after we win the lottery, right? and we do that, that everything that we've done before doesn't stop. Or the reality is, is that we get a promotion or we move to another school district or our partner moves and um, for their job. And so we move with them or whatever that reason or that rationale may be that we have that collective impact within our community that all the great things that we're doing to engage our families don't stop just because we left, but they continue to grow because we have created such an engagement. And I really, again, want to focus on that work, that engagement, not just the involvement, the engagement piece, where it doesn't matter if I, Kelly, am there or not, but that the community can still thrive at large because this is about us and who we are and not about me just doing something for the position and the requirements of that position. Um, and then tip number six, to find your way home. Now, some, uh, some people may not uh, want to do this. There may not always be opportunities to do this, um, but you can go to your students' homes. You can find ways to connect um, within the community. Now, going to their home may not necessarily be feasible, but you can definitely get into the community. And so I really do like what Dr. Holbrook recommended with having some literacy nights um, or community engagement nights at the local library. We're really trying to find places where your community already congregates and going to the community instead of them necessarily coming to you. I think that we can all remember times that we've experienced ourselves or heard stories of families that were multilingual, uh, multicultural families that didn't always receive the warmest welcome when it came to their, their use of their native language or celebrating all of their traditions. Um, I've even found where there have been situations where I have interpreted for a parent and their child before in a middle school setting because they weren't able to even have that conversation with each other. Um, just because of that loss of, of academic language that was happening with the student in their native language. So there was that, that disconnect as well. And so I just, I think it's incredibly important for us if, if we want to, to be part of the solution and not be part of the, um, uh, of the non-solution, I'll say, then we need to be actively engaged in those communities and find our ways home. Maybe not necessarily just to that student's house and that family's house, and if you can, um, I've been fortunate to be invited, and so I've definitely taken up families or taken families up on that uh, um, and that invitation. But I would also recommend just continuing to find ways to be actively engaged um, in the students' community um, at large and making uh, making the district seen and having them engaged as well. Uh, four things to know though about partnering with multilingual families. 
school expectations. And if any of you are working with teachers also that come from different cultures or different education systems from different countries, having these kind of explicit um, expectation nights or these explicit expectation meetings are needed to, to discuss what does that look like for parental involvement for what we think that's going to look like for involvement and engagement versus maybe what um, that culture is used to with involvement and engagement. Um, and so, and again, it goes back though also that you, we have to make sure that we're cutting down the barriers when it comes to language and that we're actually communicating to parents. Um, there are places where I've worked before and they have community engagement meetings. And um, so in various districts where I've worked, um, I always let the, uh, the, the leaders of the district know and remember that if we don't have interpreters at these meetings, then they are not community engagement meetings. So if you have more badges than you do have parents, that's also not a community engagement meeting. But uh, it's good to, to really bring in and engage the community, making sure that we are breaking down the language barriers to the very best of our abilities to help really express the, what these expectations are. And again, ask questions and to sit back and listen, how can we help together with these expectations? Um, also considering the cultural perspectives about disability. That's going to look different among different cultures as well. And so I'm sure that some of you are already nodding your heads and thinking about, yes, I've had that conversation before where a family did not believe that they wanted to have their child on an individual education plan or with the services of a 504, for example, because of what that um, was perceived in their culture. So again, having that understanding and finding ways to have that communication and bringing in even a social worker or with that collective impact idea, somebody from the community that can come in and help have that conversation about what some of those cultural differences might be. So, an asset-based approach to language acquisition. We've discussed a little bit today about what some of these assets are for our multilingual and multicultural families. And um, whenever I was working with some pre-K teachers not too long ago, we um, had a converse, small conversation centered around the fact that there are four years to five years that the students are bringing into the classroom with their very first teacher, which is their mom or their dad um, or any of their parents or their, their, their tios, their aunts, their primos, their cousins, their uncles, anyone at home, that they're bringing a lot of asset already to the classroom. Um, and so I want to think about ways that we can really highlight what those assets are. And we have that for our pre-K students who are coming in with just four years again from their first teacher at home all the way for our students that are up through 12th grade and beyond that are coming from uh, just really rich backgrounds that they can help enhance the uh, the the overall not just academic learning but the cross-cultural that social-cultural competence that we want to have explored in our classrooms because that trickles out to home right and so the more that we have happy kids at at school then they're going to go home we're going to have happy parents at home because they're kids are happy, which have happy parents becoming engaged in what we're trying to do um, in our schools and in our districts. Um, with that, I wanted to um, share some information on this uh, slide that has a link to it from the Center for Applied Linguistics that discusses asset-based pedagogies and practices for our multilingual and our multicultural students. And just five of those uh, keys that teachers are vital for applying an asset-based approach, valuing students' identities, language, and culture. Uh, we have the opportunity to make sure that we are celebrating the rich cultures that are brought to our classroom and not trivializing it, but finding ways that we can um, 
that we can build upon these cultural backgrounds linguistically as well as culturally. And I like to bring up a Spanish-English example is that I was in um, a training for a dual language program. And within that conversation, we were in the platform edge of skills and we were looking at the sheltered instruction activities portal. And there's a list of all these activities that you can do for your grade level, certain content areas, if you want to do listening, speaking, reading or writing, um, and what proficiency level. And so we pulled one up and in there was an example um, where we were asking questions um, and the questions were on the back of the students and then you have the answers to those questions on the backs of other students and they would walk around and have a conversation and find the right person and, and anyhow go on with the lesson. But within that, one of the question was is something like something about a, a raincoat was brought up. And so we were discussing a raincoat in English versus a raincoat in Spanish and what that is um, in Spanish in the different countries that were represented in that classroom. Um, one of the teachers specifically from Venezuela said instead of raincoat, she says, um, you know, chaqueta impermeable. Well, that word impermeable. So chaqueta impermeable is the impermeable jacket, which was just so exciting because that time we're able to take the Spanish that the student had, or in this case, the teacher had, and elevate the English because we don't say that we have an impermeable coat. We go outside for our raincoat. We're talking about just our raincoat, whereas we had cognitive academic language proficiency right there elevated for our English because of our Spanish, which I can permeable. And so it was great to introduce that science word impermeable while we were allowing the full entire linguistic repertoires of students, in this case, again, teachers, to have this conversation with such a great example for what we can actually do in the classroom. Well, that same idea exists for all of our families. They're bringing things that are going to enrich our language, that are going to enrich our culture, that are most specifically going to enrich what we're doing in our school systems to make sure that we're not only following the law, right? What, what we've already discussed from Mr. from Dr. David Holbrook, but also how do we make that come to life in such a way? And that's why all of us as educators are here because we are so passionate about this. And especially the ones on this call right now, we are in this because we understand that the assets that our students bring to our classrooms are just a small glimpse into the assets that our families bring into our entire culture. So multilingual parent advisory committees. I had mentioned before language acquisition committees or even a superintendent advisory council, but I think it would be really fantastic and it's proven to be beneficial in the districts where I have worked and been able to be engaged in these committees and in these conversations, but establishing a dedicated committee where parents, stakeholders, community leaders, and school representat representatives can come together to have full holistic conversations about how they can promote language inclusivity, um, finding um, uh, you know, input and recommendations for what can happen. And this is gonna be specific for your site and your school district. I want that to be very clear as well. There are overall generalized great ideas of what can be beneficial for you for your families and your school district, but they have to be owned by you and adopted by you as some of those core values that you have as you move forward that really relate back to maybe your strategic plan, but also the mission and vision of your district and really aligning themselves with the needs that we find, again, with the families and the students that are being served in our district. And so there's never a one-size-fits-all template nor just one silver bullet, but there are some great overarching ideas that you can really differentiate and make applicable for those being served right there in your local communities. Addressing specific needs and lastly, allocating uh, resources. 
the allocation of resources, uh, I was surprised as, um, I guess, materialistic and, and physical in nature that some of those resources are. Uh, it can be really beneficial on your websites to have a streamlined process where um, parents can go and they can find the same information um, in, in such an organized way that helps them be engaged and know what expectations are, what forms should be filled out, what type of parental involvement that you have, et cetera. But the other types of resources are just physical resources just materials that students need. And that came up a whole lot in my research about what uh, cultural proficiency actually looked like. And it, it wasn't maybe so much of just having those resources, but the understanding of the need when those resources were needed and that why behind it. So really capitalizing on that domain as that why, and then engaging yourself with the community to help allocate those resources as needed. This Right here, there's a QR code that you can scan. I'm going to make sure I find all the languages that are actually um, on here. I love, yeah, here we go. So I love this family engagement resource for multilingual families. This is from the um, the website for the National Clearinghouse for English Language Acquisition. Uh, the, the QR code is right here, and I will quickly put the link into the chat so you have it there as well. Hold on, my mouse is... I can work on I mean, that for you if you want to keep going. Here we go. Yeah. No, I found it right now. I, I put it in there. Um, but I encourage, I encourage you all as well. Don't worry about using this just specifically for your your emergent bilingual, your multilingual uh, families. But you could use this for everyone overall. Again, I think it's a really great thought whenever you consider what that could look like, because now you're working on on that pillar of sociocultural competence and bringing in this conversation with all of the stakeholders. There's going to be definitely that time for that specific Title III need to have some really unique and specific and um, intentional and pinpointed conversations. But this information that is shared with you right now. It is really fantastic. Enrolling your, your child in school, I know families that for the very first time, uh, they might have a pre-K or K student, and it's the very first time that they're enrolling their families in school, and they need this. Attending school in the United States, that looks differently for those new families, even after the pandemic a little bit. So that's still going to be good information, but it also makes them aware of the other cultural responsive activities that could be happening and strategies within your district, since you are going to be working with a multicultural group of individuals. Um, the services, of course, that are going to be eligible for your language learners, finding additional services for your child, but keeping into that mind's eye again about what does this look like specifically maybe for gifted and talented services versus your English language services versus your special education or 504 services in collaboration with your general education services, right? And then, um, of course, child safety and their health in schools. And then what does that look like to work with students at home? Uh, just a few days ago, I was working with some teachers and they had never considered the idea of encouraging um, parents to be reading with their kids in the child's native language at home because they thought that might make them go backwards in their English acquisition. And so we had a really great conversation around that and discussed how reading in any language helps develop that skill of reading. And so if we can find ways to not only engage our students in text and help them with that skill of reading as that will transfer over into any other language while still building upon their first linguistic repertoire, 
we can find creative ways and creative text to still provide information to our families as they're practicing reading with their children. We had talked about this earlier as well, but I think again, it's worth mentioning that one great way for our families um, to, to be able to come together um, as well as many of them having a desire to, to learn English or to maybe better their English if they have been learning it, um, is to do so, but as well as inviting your teachers and other stakeholders and trying to bring in the community all together. Um, I will mention and just want to highlight, just as Dr. Holbrook was saying before, that if these are classes that are intentional for your, um, your multilingual families with the use of Title III funding, well, then it needs to be specifically for them. And if other people were to come, well, that might be one thing. But this wouldn't be advertised using Title III funds for everyone to come, but it could be a great opportunity just, again, to kind of bridge between our English-only speaking families and our multilingual families. And also within our multilingual family group, recognizing that it's not just Spanish, even though that might be the majority, and finding ways that we can bring in everyone and all grow and continue to, um, together to grow linguistically and culturally. I like this picture because this is one that is specific here from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, at a festival celebrating some people that um, were part of that collective impact here within our community. But just finding great ways to showcase literature, music, and art, and reflecting the backgrounds of our multilingual families any way that we can, especially during this time uh, of the year, specifically considering Dia de los Muertos, Day of the Dead. And so any of us that have Hispanic or Latinx families that might celebrate Day of the Dead or even some stakeholders that are in our community or even some employees that are in our buildings and in our district. Thinking about what does that look like and what does that mean to have la ofrenda, to have the altar up and why do we put pictures up of other families that are right here um, and why do we why do we pray with them and why do we discuss their stories and like what, what what's the point behind that and just trying to find space to have that you can hit not only so many academic standards through all different content areas all of the four main content areas but you can really allow moments where the students get to be the leaders that sometimes they were the ones that were put up on the side but now they're the ones that are the ones leading the conversation because this is their culture this is their representation and they get to see themselves a lot in the classroom and in their district. Here's um, a good example of that. Um, for the past two years, I've been working with the uh, Dia de los Niños um, parade um, uh, committee members. And so I, anyhow, I was, I was helping to support the actual parade that was going to be happening. And so we were at the event and there was a student that came from my local school district and she said, oh my gosh, wow, this is the very first time I've ever seen my district at this event. And it had been going on for, for a few years. Um, but then I asked her, I said, well, do you ever see them at any other uh, Hispanic or Latinx events? And she said, no, this is the very first one. But she was just so excited about it. And she was a senior. And so all the years that she's been at school up until now, she had seen herself and her district represented at an event that her and her family always went to. And so it was just a really awesome moment and a great reminder to consider how these uh, how these these families need to be represented in how we as people working in our school districts need to be actively engaged in our communities, again, to be of the best service as possible for our families. As a former educator, I mentioned I was passionate about family engagement. Uh, I ran a family engagement platform 
our, our uh, uh, program where I invited parents in to come in. And so I've basically taken that idea and we've been moving towards a online platform that parents are able to access. We're currently, we do have portions of the program in operation are being able to text links to parent letters, let them digitally sign documents. In addition to modules, uh, this, this is an example video here uh, that we do have available in English and Spanish and looking at doing other languages as well. The example is helping your child succeed in school. We have digital access for parents as well, where they're able to actually go through and respond to questions. It's a curriculum that was built originally by the Center for Applied Linguistics. And over the years, I've built a strong relationship with them and have been able to get access to use the curriculum to bring to the, you know, kind of the, the, the modern age uh, web-based system. So if you guys are interested in learning more, I'd love to spend time with you. We're building it out to have at least 12 modules. Some of our districts are already implementing some of the system currently. Excited about that and how that system can be used. Ideally, if you guys have a family engagement coordinator, could be used by your family engagement coordinator to do web-based meetings like we're doing now, or you could actually invite some in, or you could do a hybrid session where you're showing these videos and giving them access to the curriculum where they're able to respond to questions. And then um, again, you can get feedback from them and also ultimately where parents are gonna be able to go see their students' test scores and all kinds of information that you guys have available to you in our system. So we're just kind of building upon that and using the resources we have now to help you guys better support your families. I would also like to draw your attention to the Cultural Connections Lab podcast that Edges Skills sponsors. And I'm very fortunate and humbled that they asked me to host that. And I have had by far um, one of the most incredible experiences getting to be um, a host and sometimes a co-host on that podcast with the awesome team. And we Tell have them who, the great ne ne who the next guest will be. Um, so uh, our last our last guest, we had um, doctors Thomas and Collier that were on. We've also had Dr. Tribble as well as Dr. Holbrook. And so I really do want you guys to come on and listen to this if you can. There's some great conversations that have been had. And uh, Taylor, I'm going to let you say who the next one is because you solidified this. And I'm really excited about this. I'm really sure. excited. Well, what we do in our, our podcast from the United States Department of Education uh, offices with the uh, the Director of Office English Language Acquisition, Montserrat Gabriel. So, so uh, it's definitely exciting. We're excited to be able to be out there and just kind of hear her story and hear more about how the, the Office of English Language Acquisition is supporting school districts across the nation. I'm just so excited to get to uh, to meet with Executive Director um, Monserrat Garavay. That's going to be absolutely wonderful. Um, and then her predecessor, Dr. Jose Viana, he was also a guest, um, as well as the past exec um, Executive Director of the Office of English Language Acquisition for USDE. And then again, just a big thank you so very much for being here today. It was an honor to get to share this space with you. Dr. Holbrook, Dr. Tribble, thank you for allowing me to be here with you. Um, and to the uh, the other two from the Edge Skills team, Lori and Mike, thank you so much. It's been an honor to be here and I really do appreciate it. And thank you to all the guests. Yeah, it's been fun. Good time. Thank you so much, Dr. Holbrook and Dr. Forbes. Thanks, Kelly. 
And I forgot to mention too, be on the lookout for NAILPA's next newsletter. Uh, Kelly Forbes, Dr. Kelly Forbes' uh, dissertation will be cited with a link so you can <laughs> access that and read all about cultural proficiency uh, and how that might be applied to your families and your schools. So we thank you all for your time. Sorry we went over a little bit here, uh, but hopefully you'll forgive us and hopefully we, that you, you found this, uh, this session helpful. And we're always here for you to respond to any questions that you may have. You have the uh, contact information uh, on that slide and obviously the slides that you can access anytime you, that you'd like. And so thank you guys for spending a couple hours with us and we look forward to hearing from you soon. Thank you all so, so much. Thanks anyone. If anybody wants to reach out to me with questions about anything legally related to ESSA, feel free. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe. Adios.